From the Mass General Center for the Environment and Health, this is Healthcare SOS. This podcast series is devoted to addressing healthcare sustainability. The U.S. healthcare system contributes substantially to the nation's greenhouse gas emissions. The goal of Healthcare SOS is to share with you how Mass General Hospital is integrating environmental sustainability into its clinical, research, and educational activities. We hope that this will help you do the same or better at your healthcare institution. Welcome to Healthcare SOS, sharing on sustainability. I'm your host, Dr. Winnie Armand. Today we are joined by Dr. Tina Duhame, a pediatric neurosurgeon at Mass General Hospital, Associate Director at the Mass General Center for the Environment and Health, and Associate Editor-in-Chief at the Journal of Climate Change and Health. You can visit our website, massgeneral.org slash healthcare SOS for Dr. Duhame's full bio. You can also find resources we may refer to during this episode on our website. Today's episode will focus on two aspects of research. One, fostering research related to climate change and health, and two, mitigating the environmental footprint of research labs. Thank you so much, Dr. Duhame, for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you on this podcast. Thanks, Dr. Armand. It's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, Dr. Duhame, I would like to start by asking you about your role as the associate editor to the journal. Can you tell us um, a little bit about the Journal of Climate Change and Health and what you do there? Certainly. This is a relatively new journal. Um, It's only a little bit over a year old, and it was started by a clinician, a physician who is in rehabilitation, who also has, like many of us do, who have gotten into this area, uh, a strong commitment to um, the idea that climate change is our biggest public health problem. So uh, her name is Markley Alexander, and she uh, had already started a nonprofit called called Sustain Our Abilities uh, for bringing to light uh, both the problem and potential solutions to the problem of the fact that people with disabilities may be one of those populations, subpopulations, that is particularly vulnerable to the effects of climate change. Uh, People with disabilities, for example, a spinal cord injured patient, uh, they have poor thermoregulation, they uh, have have reduced mobility. So when things like heat waves and floods happen, uh, these people are are in the firing line for uh, significant adverse consequences to these kinds of problems. And because of medical advances, people with disabilities are leading longer, more active lives, um, and There are more and more of them, particularly as the population ages around the world, uh, who may be in harm's way. So Dr. Alexander started uh, this nonprofit and uh, got involved in the sustainability world and recognized that there was not uh, an outlet for many people in the health professions to publish articles, to do research, to publish commentaries, to connect with others through academic work uh, in the area of climate change and health. And so uh, she began this journal, uh, went to the publisher Elsevier, and um, with their support, began a brand new uh, enterprise. There are other journals that that border on this topic, um, uh, Planetary Health. uh, There are 
environmental journals. Um, there are many journals that have to do with sustainability in various industries, but this one was the first to focus on this particular problem. Uh, I got involved because when we started the Center for the Environment and Health here at Mass General, uh, we had the idea, I and others had the idea that you know, we needed a place to publish uh, because we had hoped to include uh, active research in our efforts. It was one of the pillars of our center along with operations, education, and advocacy. And um, because research uh, is always part of what we do here in an academic medical center, uh, I had the idea of starting a new journal, and then I was put in touch with Dr. Alexander, who had just started it. So my role became associate editor and later associate editor-in-chief, uh, and it's a, it's a pretty wide-ranging um, job description. Uh, it, it's a volunteer job, and um, we do things like have strategy meetings frequently, uh, troubleshoot problems. We really are encouraging people from all over the world, from underserved populations, from non-English speaking uh, uh, people and places. Uh, we really want this to be a global outlet for people to uh, share information and their learnings uh, about climate change and health in all kinds of settings. So uh, there are many, many parts to the job, uh, some of which we're learning as we go, but it's been an extraordinarily satisfying uh, activity. And I've met a tremendous number of really wonderful, committed people. Well, that's really great to hear about the history of the journal. I, a lot of that is new to me. So thank you for sharing that. I'm curious about what the submissions are like that the journal is getting. What is there? Has there been a trend? How, how many do you get? What are the articles usually on? What do you, what, um, and what are you looking for? Right. So, uh, you know, for a journal that's just over a year old, we've had uh, almost 250 submissions. We have published uh, about uh, just over 120 uh, papers, uh, commentaries and so forth, uh, research papers and reviews. And they've really come from all over the world. So one of the interesting things is that um, Dr. Alexander's vision was that we would have people on the editorial board from virtually every medical subspecialty. But what we came to realize fairly early on was that we needed other expertise because some of the submissions are from people who study things like agriculture or epidemiology or uh, things like uh, weather changes and monitoring of climate prediction in various locales. And all of these things are not things that are in the vocabulary or expertise of medically trained physicians, unless they happen to have you know, a special interest or a background in some of these other areas. So the papers that we get are quite broad in their topics. Uh, some of them are about the health effects of climate change, heat, um, pollution, particulate matter. Um, some of them are about uh, floods and infectious diseases. Some of them are about mitigation efforts. Uh, and some of them are about things like mathematical modeling, um, predictions of the future. A few are about special populations, like how does this affect children in a given locale? How will this affect people with a particular medical condition? in a particular specialty. So we've gotten uh, papers about climate change effects of things like uh, dermatology conditions or 
uh, obstetrics and pregnancy outcomes, um, climate migration and the effect of uh, scarce resources on populations that could lead to conflicts and increased uh, wars and, and uh, you know, uh, escape from terrible uh, climate influenced situations. So the range of the type of papers and the topic areas is quite broad. And for this reason, we are always looking to increase our uh, reviewers. Uh, we are starting a formal reviewer board that is sort of a, a subcategory of a kind of an editorial reviewer board uh, with people with particular areas of expertise so that our reviews and what we publish can be the highest quality. And do you have any advice for young researchers, authors, and scientists? Well, I think that um, the standards in what is accepted for publication always are trying to rise. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we feel strongly at the Journal of Climate Change and Health that our job is to encourage people to publish in this area. So there are some papers, it's an arduous process, uh, that have gone back for five or six or more revisions. Now that's not average, but we really want your work to get out there. We feel that many, many people from different areas of investigation have contributions to make to this you know, critical area. So the editorial board is committed to working with people. So my advice is if you're inexperienced, if you're not sure, we're not like the teacher grading you. We're, we're like the coach trying to help. And uh, what we want to do is uh, go back and forth and, and work very interactively with new authors who may not be used to publishing in this area uh, or established authors who haven't found a home or would like to publish in this journal because I think it, it, is, uh, it is outpacing the expectations of the publisher Elsevier. Um, and we would say, uh, don't hesitate to contact us or to submit something. We will work with you to try to make it um, as, as publish, publish worthy as it can be. We do have some special issues and uh, this is an open access gold journal. That means that it is free for everybody. It is totally open access. There are publication fees, but if that's a barrier, there are ways around that. There are some funds available. And also when we have a special issue, that special issue waives the um, publication fee. Our publication fees, we deliberately are keeping them as low as possible. And some institutions have, the institution itself will pay the publication fee for the authors. Uh, but the special issues are free for submission. And we have two coming up. One is on climate change communications. What are the best ways? What, what has worked the best to get the word out particularly for people in the health professions, uh, not exclusively, but that's of course our kind of biggest audience. And the second special issue that's coming up, which is free for submissions, is on what solutions interdisciplinary and between sectors, between uh, departments, between whole agencies or industries, uh, what ways have the effects of climate change and health found solutions through collaboration. That is, it's one thing to teach people about it and to get the word out, but it's another thing to actually influence policy decisions, business decisions, legislative decisions, uh, and how have people most effectively found 
practical solutions that lead to changes in behavior and changes in how we all do business in the world to decrease uh, the, the environmental effects. That sounds incredible. I'm really looking forward to that issue. And I know I've learned a lot from, from the past issues. And our listeners can go to our uh, our landing page at massgeneral.org slash healthcare SOS and find references to your to this journal. Um, I do want to shift gears. I know that you you spend a lot of time fostering research uh, as and uh, publications, but also at Mass General, I know that you work a lot in terms of trying to decrease the footprint of the hospital at such an academic medical center where there are a lot of research labs. Um, so I'd love for you to share with the listeners, um, uh, maybe perhaps some of your role there and um, maybe explain a little bit also about the footprint of, of re- clinical and research labs. Certainly. Mass General has an enormous research enterprise. It's one of you know, its big pillars. We have research that uh, is over a billion dollar enterprise. And uh, I don't need to tell you because you work here as well, that it is one of the biggest funded research um, activities of an academic medical center in the country. Um, and because of that, there's a lot that goes on that does contribute potentially to environmental harm. Um, people talk about hospitals, they talk about the operating room, the emergency rooms, uh, procedures that are done, waste that is generated. And the research enterprise of hospitals has been less well studied. Um, As I think you know, Dr. Armand, we are planning, we're in the planning phases now of a full sector um, energy and environmental impact audit that will be uh, an external audit. And that is going to encompass not just our clinical operations, but also our research operations. Because in fact, in a clinical enterprise, things are done in a fairly standardized way. Typically, there's a purchasing department that is um, uh, charged with getting the best equipment and materials at a reasonable price that are safe and standardized so that everybody uses the same thing in the clinical departments. But in the research world, purchasing is done per laboratory. So if you're the principal investigator of a research lab and you have X number of employees that are paid for largely off of your grants, uh, your purchasing decisions are up to you. You have a budget and you can generally purchase from uh, many different sources, Uh, and uh, for many different reasons. And for this reason, the research enterprise is much more heterogeneous and harder to track. Um, That said, there are many um, areas of possible improvement in the environmental footprint of things that are done in the laboratory. And they're not terribly different from some of the things that are done in the clinical enterprise. For example, the biggest source of Greenhouse gas emissions on the research side uh, is use of energy. And what does that energy go for? It goes for incredibly energy intensive equipment. So like the clinical enterprise, many of these machines run 24 seven, things like minus 80 degree freezers. So we're not original to this. We have borrowed ideas from other people who have looked into this a great deal. But for example, uh, there are, generally very safe ways to change the setting on um, an ultra cold freezer of minus 80 degrees to minus 70 degrees. And there are published lists of kinds of specimens that people have had frozen in their their freezers 
um, when they switched from minus 80 to minus 70 with no ill effects to those specimens. So those are the kinds of easy changes that single change can uh, save a lot of energy. There are many other pieces of laboratory equipment that can be placed on timers. They can be color coded that this one needs to be turned off at night and this one only needs to be turned off, you know, um, if there are other constraints. Um, this one has to be kept on at all times. Uh, there are those sorts of um, human factors, reminders that can be built in. And then, of course, when people think about laboratories, they also think about chemical waste and solid waste. Uh, there are many, many ways to reduce solid waste. And, and just like in the clinical enterprise, perhaps the most effective is to use less of it in the first place. And there are ways that people have um, facilitated doing uh, smaller numbers of experiments or smaller scope experiments that get the same scientific results with less waste. So all of these are uh, methods that labs can use. We are using uh, uh, international and national um, predecessors of these efforts, uh, things like uh, My Green Labs is one uh, international organization where they have come up with some best practices. There's something called the International Institute for Sustainable Laboratories, uh, and they have also uh, tested some uh, metrics and uh, methods for reducing uh, the environmental footprint of laboratories. These are not focused specifically on the healthcare sector. They're focused on often commercial labs, but there is no reason that, uh, and even they say, there's no reason these can't be applied and have been applied to biomedical labs within hospitals. So uh, using all of the work that other people have done, the challenge is getting our um, PIs and our investigators to buy into this because the biggest challenge really is getting people to feel like anything they do is likely to make a difference. Sometimes it feels like a very small drop in a very large ocean, uh, but if enough of us do it and figure out how to do it and figure out how to reward people for doing it, uh, it can make a substantial difference. So how has the response been at Mass General with the scientists, the investigators? Well, that's a great question because we've been surprised. Uh, it's been interesting to us that the people who have reached out to us most after we give lectures on this to the uh, Research Institute, the Research Council, the um, uh, uh, Executive Committee for Research, the people who have tended to reach out to us have been the younger people and junior investigators. There have been some senior investigators and my administrative uh, partner in this enterprise is the director of the Mass General Research Institute, Dr. Sue Slagenhaupt. And she is a very established, very senior, very accomplished, uh, decorated uh, uh, researcher. And she has been uh, incredibly helpful and supportive of this effort. Uh, but the younger junior investigators have been the people who have tended to reach out as well as um, uh, laboratory managers, for example. And this is along the lines of what we see oftentimes that our residents, our medical students, our junior attendings, these are the people that have grown up at a time when environmental concerns have been increasingly uh, on their minds. And they really care about this. They're passionate about this. But here is one of our barriers. Our barrier is that here you are asking very busy people 
oftentimes on limited budgets, because anybody that has a lab, I have run uh, my own lab for many years. Um, anybody that has been involved in research realizes that your budget never seems to match up with your needs and you always feel constrained uh, financially in the research world. And so asking people to take time to change their processes, uh, to save money where the savings really goes to the overhead of the institution, but doesn't necessarily have a simple path to have those savings uh, or that benefit come back to the people who put the effort in to make the change. And this is an incentive problem that is true for pro-environmental behavior in general. If a hospital building real estate enterprise cuts their energy use, the hospital saves money. And hopefully the people who did the work to do that uh, see that reward in some way. But if it's your lab and it's your lab workers and your junior investigators and your technicians who are doing all the work to change things and how they do things, um, and nobody gets any kind of bonus, and you don't actually see the results of what you did. You just maybe feel a little good about it, but it doesn't change. It doesn't bring the, the temperature down a degree. It doesn't you know, make things grow better. You don't see it tangibly. It's an intellectual reward that is purely mediated by your cognition. So what we are working on uh, and what I'm working on with Dr. Slagenhaupt, and she's the one who brought this up. She has a great deal of insight into this enterprise is how do you bring these efforts around to the people who make them to make it rewarding to them, to make it worth their while, to put in the effort, uh, sometimes the expense to buy different kinds of equipment, but mostly it's time to invest in, okay, which of these suppliers of pipettes has the best you know, product that has the lowest environmental profile? Which process can I use that has the least you know, toxicity. This takes work. It takes homework. So for that reason, we have designed a laboratory greening the lab consult service where we and some undergraduate students, some medical students uh, have created a team that will come to your lab and consult just like you would have a consult for infection control or a consult for a medical problem. So this consult service, we hope takes some of the pain and effort out of it uh, and we'll make it easier for people to actually do this. And at the same time, we'll work on how do we make it rewarding uh, for the participants. That sounds really incredible. And it just reminds me, I think, how, how fortunate we are at Mass General to have senior leadership, including at the Research Institute, have similar visions to, um, to help make this happen. I wonder if you have any thoughts for our listeners about how they, what they should consider if they wanted to bring similar practices to their institutions? Any words of advice uh, from either your successes and failures? So many people have uh, gone through the organization uh, Healthcare Without Harm and Practice Green Health to find ways to green their hospital operations, their clinical operations. We are starting a process of working with Practice Green Health to see if we can uh, bring some suggestions and some pathways through that mechanism for hospital laboratories uh, to engage in. But in the meantime, there are many online sites. Uh, like I mentioned, My Green Lab is one place to start. They have uh, a freezer challenge that uh, lets you actually have a little competition going for how you reduce your energy. It's really quite simple. And, and many labs here have actually already participated in that. Um, the International Institute for Sustainable Laboratories, these all can be found online. 
Uh, there are some specific hospitals or universities like Stanford that has things on their website for uh, simple ways to start. Uh, and then I would say check back with us in, in a few months as we get further along in our consult process. Uh, people can contact us and we can give them advice as to what worked for us in specifically laboratories in a hospital setting. But there are some quite simple things that people can do that can reduce their energy use, their toxicity, and their solid waste. So it's, um, it, it takes some effort, but I think it pays off in the long run. Well, I find this conversation incredibly encouraging. And I know that your team has put together some information, some basic information about uh, making research labs greener, as well as a list of references. And if it's okay with you, uh, we'd, I'd love to have that also on our landing page for our listeners to refer to in the reference section. That would be great. Yep. Wonderful. Any last thoughts or comments, Dr. Tuhain? Well, I think one of the things that has um, surprised me is that many people in the health professions uh, have expressed concern about this topic, but they've also expressed a general malaise and anxiety because they don't know where to start and they don't know what to do. And they don't know that anything they do is going to make a substantial difference. And what I would say is that it isn't surprising that people feel that way. Even with the journal, you know, you may feel good that you publish something, but, you know, there's a little bit of that so what feeling. We are used to, in the medical field, feeling immediate reward for taking care of patients and getting them better. And even if we can't get them better, it's that interpersonal relationship we have with our patients that brings us a great deal of satisfaction and a sense of accomplishment in the moment. The problem with environmental behavior is that you don't get that immediate reward. It's a long-term process where you don't see the results of your efforts. And therefore, it's a setup for feeling discouraged, for feeling like nothing you do makes any difference, uh, and for just feeling like you don't have agency. And what I would say is that in both publication and uh, making new literature in this area and in efforts like greening your hospital, greening your home, uh, greening your lifestyle, uh, or greening your laboratory, everything that we do, we do have the capacity to make a change. And we do have the capacity to reduce our consumption, uh, reduce our energy emissions, uh, reduce our use of fossil fuels. We can do it if enough of us do it and we commit to it. So what I would say is don't get discouraged. When we go to the lab and people say, this isn't going to make any difference, it's our job to educate them that, you know, in fact, it can make a difference. And while it doesn't feel significant because you can't see those results immediately, uh, don't give up, don't get discouraged, don't get nihilistic. We're all in this together. That's wonderful, Dr. Duhame. I'm so glad you, you said those words. And in fact, we will maybe have you back next year and we can see the difference uh, once we have the footprint including the research labs. And uh, I think, yes, we might not have immediate reward, but maybe next year we'll see it. What do you think? I think that's a great idea. Thank you so much, Dr. Armand. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Dr. Duhame. I appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthcare SOS. You can learn more about Healthcare SOS and today's guest at massgeneral.org slash healthcare SOS. Find more episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate us, and share with your friends and colleagues. Healthcare SOS is a production of Massachusetts General Hospital's Center for the Environment and Health in Boston, Massachusetts. Healthcare SOS was conceived by your host, Winnie Armand. Music beats are courtesy of Olivier Armand.